Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. This is our third edition of Women Leaders Shortcuts, the third edition since the Hamas attacked Israel on the 7th of October. We've been trying to catch up every week with leading women as to what happened and what will happen. And to this end, we are delighted to welcome back Olga Oliker, Director for Europe and Central Asia at the International Crisis Group, who has many thoughts, I'm sure, on what has happened and what will happen. Hi, Olga, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Alana, for having me. Where are we going to start this week? Why don't we start straight from Europe? Good week for Europe, bad week for Europe? Oh, tough week for Europe, I think. Um, lots of difficulty figuring out what to say and what words to use when you say, when you say them. Um, I think uh, a real challenge as for the United States in finding uh, a way to continue to support Israel while dealing with uh, the global repercussions of doing that uh, as Israel continues to bomb Gaza. Um, so I think, uh, and then in the meantime, right, still, still have a war in Ukraine and with the United States in a uh, rather uh, bizarre state, uh, lots, lots of harbingers perhaps of uh, worse to come, uh, the U.S. Uh, does finally have a Speaker of the House of Representatives, but it's not clear what kinds of laws that House of Representatives is going to be able to pass. And from, you know, sitting here in Europe, you look at this and you think, okay, what does this mean for our foreign policy if we are likely to have a United States that is at best a little unpredictable? Why do you think it's going to be much more unpredictable in the simple sense that isn't the president responsible for foreign policy? So as we've seen um, over the last years, the president is responsible for foreign policy and the Congress is responsible for money. And you can't fund your foreign policy without money. Um, so for instance, what uh, the president, what uh, the Biden administration is asking for right now is money for both Israel and Ukraine, among other things. And what they're trying to do is bundle those together because they know there's congressional support to fund Israel. And there's actually pretty much congressional support to fund Ukraine too, but there are some vocal minority folks who are opposed to that. So if they can just mix it all together, it won't be a problem. Now, of course, those vocal minority folks especially don't want to mix it all together. Um, and this is one of the many, many ways that Congress affects foreign policy. Congress also does things like vote sanctions uh, into law, which then make it very, very difficult to lift those sanctions. So, you know, it's not quite as simple as the executive branch does foreign policy and the Congress does it, you know, whatever it is it does. Absolutely. Um, so let's just have a look very closely what it is that you have just said from the point of view of where Europe is and where its effective two fronts are. Um, it now has an active front in Ukraine and it has an active front in the Middle East. 
Um, what's happening in the war in Ukraine? Because for the past three weeks, it appears to have been overshadowed by events in the Middle East, but that has just been rolling along, hasn't it? Uh, yes, the war continues. Um, very little uh, territory is changing hands in this war that continues, but lots of people are dying and being wounded. Um, the Russians have launched their own campaign to try to take Avdiivka, a town in the northeast of Ukraine that has not uh, seemingly been successful, though it has also killed a lot of people. Um, but you know, this is what we've seen for months now, right? Is a very slow attritional warfare or very slow movement as a result of attritional warfare all along the line of contact and geographical gains by either side that are tiny. Um, and then every once in a while something happens that everyone gets very excited about, uh, right? The Russians move uh, forces out of the port of Sevastopol, but they're still in Crimea as a whole. Or, you know, you get um, this announcement the Ukrainians have broken at least one of the Russian lines of defense. But the end result is not, this, none of this is actually decisive from the standpoint of the conflict as a whole. And these hopes that something like what happened um, now over a year ago with uh, the earlier Ukrainian counteroffensive where there was massive territory retaken, particularly in Kharkiv Oblast, we're not seeing anything like that again, and people are having to come to terms with the reality that that's unlikely. And that's, you know, I think from the European perspective, Euro European uh, governments are supporting this, uh, supporting Ukraine in this war out of their own security interests. Um, they're not going to stop. But U.S. support has been critical, and the United States frankly, has more capacity to send weapons to Ukraine. The Europeans are trying to ramp up that capacity, but they don't have it. Uh, they have to build it. So if they really are at risk of losing the Americans on this one, if not immediately, then eventually, then this is going to take some thinking. It's going to take a lot of thinking, in fact. I mean, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of this week about the fact that Ukraine had signed its first uh, contract with Rheinmetall, the German company, to build a facility in Ukraine proper, as opposed to just in Germany. But there is a consequence of the US trying to arm two different armies, which is um, Ukraine and Israel, because it just doesn't have enough armaments, does it? So look, they're not necessarily going to need the same weaponry, and these are very dissimilar wars. Um, I think the area where you run into the most risk of uh, drawing on the same, uh, the same warehouses is when it comes to ammunition. Uh, the Ukraine war has been very, very ammunition heavy and continues to be so. And, you know, this, this, is, what, this is the reason fundamentally the United States sent cluster munitions to Ukraine last summer. It wasn't that anybody thought cluster munitions were the ideal solution to this problem. It was a cluster munitions could be sent. They were available. Um, and what we've seen already happen is that uh, munitions that the United States had planned to send to Ukraine from stocks that it stores in Israel, these have now been held back in case Israel needs them. Uh, so, you know, this is where you've got uh, the potential for both Ukraine and Israel to draw on the same supplies. Other, uh, other weaponry I worry less about just because of the very different nature of the conflict, of the two conflicts. We're recording this on uh, the 28th of October, Saturday, so that's exactly three weeks since the Hamas attack in Israel, and on the day in which it appears 
as though Israel has launched uh, a ground incursion into Gaza. We know that um, this is vaguely disputed, not necessarily by heads of state in Europe, but on the street. Um, why do you think heads of state are supporting Israel and why do you think they're finding it so difficult to communicate this to audiences in Europe? Wow, that's, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons that European uh, governments support Israel, right? If you look at Germany, for instance, uh, a lot of this has to do with the, with World War II, right? And the continuing German effort to make reparations uh, and the responsibility they feel towards Israel as a result of that. Uh, other countries have different positions and for different reasons. The ways in which Israel has treated um, the Palestinians on territory that it controls, however, have had tremendous repercussions globally, and they've had and it's had tremendous repercussions uh, among uh, European populations, some of whom come from the Middle East, some of whom come from other countries uh, where they experienced occupation and limited self-rule. And this has an impact on how they look at the situation in the Middle East now and at how they look at Israel's assault on Gaza. And of course, I mean, I don't know about you, but my social media feeds seem to be like alternating reports of atrocities, right? And I think this, you know, this has an impact. And um, look, I get alternating reports of atrocities. A lot of people just get the one side. Um, and that, so those people, they see that and they see pictures, they see video of people dying, of people suffering, and that's real. People are dying, people are suffering, and they don't want this to happen, and they want, and they put pressure on their governments. Uh, and the governments have to explain that they see Israel as a, um, as a bulwark in the Middle East, that Israel is a partner and, you know, if not a treaty ally, an ally in the sense of a country with which they are aligned. And, you know, some people are gonna buy that and some people aren't. Uh, it's a problem for the United States too. Indeed, it's a problem for the United States and we've seen for the third week running effectively demonstrations um, on both sides for and against. Why do you think this war is evoking such emotions? I think we now see wars fought in social media and in part because this is a war in which um, diasporas are all around the world and are very much in the United States and in Europe with a lot of access to social media and a lot of access to, to traditional media as well they're able to make this very visible. I mean, you saw this in Ukraine too, right? The wars that affect people you know, or people whom people you know know get more attention. And this is a war where, you know, you can pull up any newspaper and there's a story about a, family, a local family in Belgium or in the United States and their ties, their family members in Gaza or in Israel and what has happened to them. So I think these links are very immediate and very much there and people have opinions on this. 
Um, you could also probably make arguments about anti-Muslim feeling on the one hand and anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish uh, feeling on the other, also driving uh, how people look at this war um, from all sorts of perspectives. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that is the case, right? There are people whose prejudice is what is defining their positions as well. That's very, very clear. And what do you think is defining the positions of um, the cacophony that we saw, as ever, at the EU Council meeting on Thursday and Friday, in which they spent five hours shouting at each other, trying to come to the terminology of humanitarian pauses, as opposed to a pause? Or a ceasefire, right? Which other people <gasps> wanted. Yes, I mean, I think this is exactly right. It's how, what can we say that offends the fewest people. And, um, and people are on the one hand looking for the language that offends the fewest people, and on the other hand very frustrated that they are forced to look for the language that offends the fewest people. And all while actually, I mean, writing a text that will have zero impact, right? What the specifics of their words will have absolutely no relationship to what anybody does in the actual Middle East. But it will be watched, right? And voters see this um, and they might ridicule it. But I think the judgment is that better to be ridiculed for having argued over the plural or singular of the word pause than to actually use language that makes people mad. Is Russian President Vladimir Putin rubbing his hands in glee over both the actual catastrophe unfolding in Israel and Gaza and the cacophony and entire helplessness of the EU? So I think he's certainly looking at this as an opportunity. Um, we've seen his foreign ministry uh, out there saying that the reason that uh, all of this has happened is because the United States has, and the US-led West, has screwed everything up. Um, Moscow is not offering a solution, mind you. Uh, what it has done is effectively jettison a very positive relationship with, um, with Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, um, and thus Israel and you know refused to, to or failed to condemn the hamas uh, hamas attacks on october 7th um done a lot of both sides sort of discussions uh blamed the west and met with hamas um now it has not been able to free russian citizen hostages despite meeting with hamas uh, it cannot, uh, as some would like it, somehow keep Iran from doing anything. Iran's going to do what Iran's going to do, and the Russians would like to continue receiving Iranian drones, so they're not going to do anything about it. But I think the Russians are trying to find a position in all of this in which they say to the world as a whole that unlike the annoying Americans and the annoying Europeans who continue to side with the uh, quote-unquote colonial Israelis, Russia is firmly on the side of the colonized, of the Palestinians, and thus of all of the peoples of the world that have faced oppression. Now, of course, any reading of history will tell you that Russia is uh, actually a neo-colonialist, neo-imperialist power in its own right. Just look at the war in Ukraine for your evidence. 
but that's not, you know, to the extent that this gets listened to or read, to the extent to which frustration with the United States and Europe drives attitudes rather than a careful and nuanced reading of history or, or even current events, you know, I think the Russians might pick up some friends at, some friends this way. Now, again, can they do anything with it other than pick up um, some goodwill? I don't know, but I think the Kremlin's going to do its best to make the most of this. And they're clearly making the most of this. So um, do you think they're looking for a new world order in which they would have a bigger place at the table? Look, the Russians put out a foreign policy concept last spring, which laid out pretty much what they want. And what they want is a weaker United States. What they want is to break uh, the alliances the United States has, especially with Europe, but certainly globally. They want to weaken US influence and they want to place themselves at this vanguard of countries standing up uh, to American hegemony. So, you know, I think, you know, they would like a world in which they have more influence and ideally lots and lots of it. The US has less. And the argument for this is that the, what the United States uses its influence for is to weaken and contain Russia. So if the United States can't do that, Russia can do what it wants to do. Um, and yeah, so, the, you know, is that a new world order? Uh, yeah, it's different than the one we've got, we've got uh, though I'm not sure the one we've got is all that ordered. But it is interesting because, you know, uh, for years there's all of this debate about what do the Russians really want. And the Russians came out last spring with a document that says, all the things you've been saying about our desire to break the, um, the, the, uh, the rules-based international order. Yep, nope, that's true. Yep, that's exactly what we're doing. Whether it's actually all that rules-based or not is a different issue, but no, our plan is to destroy that. So, you know, if the world decides to destroy it all by itself, uh, Russia's gonna do its best to benefit. Clearly, that's a very, very good analysis. And do the Europeans understand this, do you think? That this is what the Russians are trying to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that Europeans view the war in Ukraine as existential for Europe, uh, that a Russia that is able to succeed by using military force to um, attain its goals, uh, a Russia that is empowered to use uh, nuclear coercion to cow other countries into doing what it wants, that's not a system that is healthy or safe for Europe. Uh, and that's not, that's not the system that everybody who created the EU has been working all of these years to try to build. So yes, I think very much they see this as uh, very dangerous. And do they have any influence, do you think, over Hamas? The Europeans? No, Russia. I don't know. I mean, I, um, I don't know that anyone has adequate influence over Hamas at present, right? I mean, this is kind of the, this is the question. Uh, the decision to carry out this massacre on October 7th from all evidence was carried out in quite the vacuum. Um, so what does it mean to have influence uh, over a group that decides to do something like this and does it? Um, so, you know, what does influence mean? What, what would the Russians threaten? And again, the fact that the Russians have not been able to get Russian nationals released 
Russian national hostages released does not bode well for their influence over Hamas. Let's go back to where we started from, Europe, the European Council, um, not doing very, very well. It doesn't seem to have a plan as ever. Who does? This does not seem to be a crisis in which lots of people have very clear plans. That is very true. But nonetheless, even in the absence of a plan, what do you think we're about to see in week four of this two-fronted reality? So I think the war in Ukraine is going to continue as it has. Um, I do not... We get surprises every once in a while in this conflict. The Ukrainians, in fact, uh, are wondering about the relative uh, slowdown in Russian bombardments, particularly of Kiev. They think they're about due for another one, wondering what's up with that. So I think we're going to see more of the same in Ukraine as the weather gets colder, which probably won't be the next week, but over time, we're going to go into another winter, right? Uh, where generators will need to make up for attacks on the energy grid and so forth. Though, again, the Ukrainians have gotten very, very good at uh, sustainability on that front. Um, and in the Middle East, you know, one of the, I started off studying the Middle East uh, along with what was then the Soviet Union. And I am often very glad that I focused mainly on the countries of uh, greater Eurasia. I mean, I've worked in the Middle East since then, but I'm very glad that I dive in and out and I don't have to try to understand it because it is such a consistent mess. Um, but I don't think it, I don't think it's going to end in the next week. And I think our hope is that it doesn't expand. And Europe, it'll just go its merry way, arguing with each other, or because it's uh, public holidays everywhere this week in large parts of Europe, nobody's going to pay attention. I don't know. I mean, I think there will be a lot of talk about what they can do on the humanitarian side, if anything. Uh, discussions with uh, allies, partners, and others uh, in an effort to find points of leverage, efforts to urge the Israelis to behave uh, in ways aligned with international law uh, as they continue their, uh, their pursuit of Hamas. And yes, continued arguments over the wording of uh, statements such as it has always has been, I suppose. Uh, just in this case, maybe we can call it a Halloween horror um, episode in one way or another. Thank you, Olga. Thank you, Alana. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices Shortcuts. Thank you so much to Olga, as I've said. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. So reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel with my excellent friend and producer, Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation.